Hello, Atlanta and Georgia and surrounding states and, heck, the world. We are doing our first ever live Christmas show Yeah, in our hometown this December. Ring, 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 ring. It is stuff you should know. So what can people expect? So, Chuck, they can expect all the gloriousness of all of our Christmas specials that we do every year, but live on stage and with spiked eggnog. Yeah, we're just going to sit up on stage and play all those shows on a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. It'll be, It'll be so like, great. This one was great. Do you guys remember this? <laughs> It'll be 10 times better than that because it's going to actually be an all-new show with us live on stage, one night only in Atlanta, GA. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool, everyone. And it is December 8th at the wonderful Center Stage Theater here in Atlanta where I have seen various shows over the years. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be there now. Yeah. We're going to be there. It's very intimate, cool little theater, so we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to seeing you. Go to SYSK Live for information and tickets, and uh, let's get in the Christmas spirit. Oh, and, and on Thursday, August 9th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, there will be a password-protected pre-sale. You use the code HIPPYROB. And you will get your tickets that day, a day before they go on sale to the general public, which is Friday. So either get them Thursday, get them Friday. Either way, come see us in Atlanta for our one-time-only Christmas special. That's right. They go on sale this Friday. So don't snooze or you will lose. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And wait for it. Mm -hmm. There is first time ever guest producer, Dylan. First time? First time. I confirmed it with him. He's nodding. He said we're the only show here that he hasn't guested as a producer on. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So the ban has been lifted. (laughs) <laughs> finally. I don't know if it was his band or It was band. his band. Oh, okay. They finally wore him down. <laughs> but you know, he's the regular producer on Afropunk Solution Sessions. Yes. Which is a pretty awesome podcast. It is. Hosted by our pals Eve Jeffcoat. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't pronounce the S on Eve's, but it's Eve's. Yeah. I verified this. <laughs> and Bridget Todd from Stuff Mom Never Told You. Bridget's Todd. Right. She has an S as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they do, um, they kind of present like, you, you know, Afropunk, like the, the tour, the musical tour. Oh, yeah. The awesome musical tour. Um, they have like a, a side thing called Solution Sessions, and it's kind of like um, TED Talks, but for, um, so for, for significant things that get overlooked generally. So like race-centric stuff or reproductive rights or things like that. Right. And it's pretty awesome. It's good. And uh, you can get it anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Well, we got to pay them somehow. <laughs> I was just going to slide on uh, my half-warm sparkling water as, as payment. No? I've got a cold one here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. How do you get those? Out of the fridge. Yeah. So, Chuck, um, before we get started, again, a couple other things. There are two episodes in here that I want to do separately, okay? Uh, I bet you I can guess them. Let's hear. Civil Air Patrol? No. What? Sure, but that wasn't one of them. Oh, well, that was one of mine. Okay, so there's three, and this is a meaty episode. Jeez. What's the other one, then? I don't know. Oh, you know it. Scuba? Or we already did Scuba Cat. We did. I forgot about him. Did you interview the guy who who made Scuba Cat swim around? Yeah, and it's funny. We often mention Jackhammers as our worst show ever. I forgot it's Scuba Cat. Is it? Did it's, you go back and listen? It's got to, no, but it's got to be the worst episode okay. ever, right? We'll have to have like a listening party. That was like not even a thing. We'll listen to Jackhammers and Scuba Cat. <laughs> it was. Well, it was a thing. It was that one cat. Yeah, and I guess we can just come out and say now that Discovery Channel made us do that. <laughs> That's like kind of one of the only times we were steamrolled. That's funny. Otherwise, we have autonomy. I don't know if that was being steamrolled as much as Rickrolled. <laughs> well, now I don't even know what you're going to pick then. All right, I'll tell you then. No more suspense for you. Um, Coast Guard. No. Uh, I don't feel like you know me at all anymore. I don't. Search and Rescue Dogs. Oh. They're really? like, dude, I looked at the article. It's at least as big as this one. All right. Robust. And they don't have a lot of overlap. Okay. It's not like doing recycling twice or anything like that. <laughs> and the other one is Getting Lost. Oh, well, that's a little esoteric. 
Right, right. <laughs> I didn't expect you to guess the lost uh-huh. one. I thought you'd get search and rescue dogs, but there's like a whole psychology to getting lost. And this is about finding people. I want to talk about getting lost sometime. It's just too much to put onto this one. So it's going to be its own episode, okay? Great. All right. And I'll earmark Civil Air Patrol because uh, fellow network uh, host colleague John Roderick (laughs) of Omnibus is or was a member of the Civil Air Patrol. Is he mayor yet? No, no, no. Because that'd be something if you were like mayor known as the flying mayor of Seattle. <laughs> He'd love to be the flying mayor of Seattle. But even still, member of the Civil Air Patrol, it's pretty interesting. So he flies. Uh, did. I don't know if he's current, but Roderick, is, he has a very interesting past. That'd be... Well, he's an interesting dude. It'd be kind of fun to do Civil Air Patrol and pick his brain. Okay. Let's do it. His weird brain. Yeah. It's All right. Flying brain. So we have our two organic show plugs in. Yeah. No check one noticed. And check. <laughs> so we're talking today about SAR, mm-hmm. search and rescue. I forgot I wrote this. You did write it back in like a million years ago. Yeah, that's when I was. Um, I was so excited to be the adventure writer. You wrote a bunch of adventure stuff. <laughs> when I was named adventure writer. Mm-hmm. Here's the funny part of this story. I was named adventure writer. I was really excited. Then after a while of doing this stuff, before the podcast, mm-hmm. I went into. An unnamed boss. Oh, you! I know this story. <laughs> and said, like, hey, man, I really think that, like, I'm kind of wondering about the future here uh-huh. and and where where I could go and <laughs> if I could work my way up somehow to do things. And he, he very politely was like, I think this is kind of the deal. And, like, there is not much of a future here beyond writing these articles. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then that same dude would change my life yeah. by tossing a podcast our way. Yeah. Isn't that funny how things work out? It is hilarious. No future here. Right. <laughs> I think he even put a cigarette out in front of you. It, on my hand. Mm-hmm. It was really painful. So, But a reminder still. But you wrote some good stuff. The survival stuff is is good. We have more to, to, to dig through. I appreciate it. I, I was nervous going into when I saw this was my article from back then. I was like, oh, man, this is going to stink. But it was actually a decent article. It was. It was an expansive article, too. There's a lot of stuff to it because there's a lot of stuff to search and rescue. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different kinds of search and rescue, right? for sure. I mean, you know. Now I feel like the sham is up because you already know all this stuff, so I can't tell you anything. Mm, I guess I'll tell you guys who are listening to the podcast. But there's a lot of different types of search and rescue, right? There's urban search and rescue, which happens after, say, like like 9-11. USAR? Yep. I've also seen it US and R. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a little mouthy. It is. Um, there's like marine or water rescue. Sure. Which is usually the one that kind of comes to mind when I think of like military rescue. But then there's like combat rescue. Yeah. Like the Scott O'Grady thing, which we'll touch on. Sure. Um, and then there's like the normal search and rescue that I think a lot of people think of, which is <clears throat> somebody getting lost in the woods or the desert or something and a bunch of sheriff's deputies kind of spread out and start looking for you. Deputies and just people. Yes, did you know that before you researched this article that people, like, dedicate themselves to this, spend their own money to like, yes. on training and equipment and things? Yeah. The reason I know that is because um, my dad had a touch of this hmm. um, when he With owned a Jeep, Jeep years <laughs> ago. And I've told stories about him going out on snowy days and, and using his toe winch to pull people out of ditches. Mm-hmm. So there was I was just aware of there being a general, like, thing with certain outdoors people where they're they had like they like to get in in there sure. and volunteer and if they hear someone's trapped in the woods near their house they're out there yeah like i knew they existed but there's like a an actual like process you can go yeah. through and become a registered like r- searcher yeah and i think some of these people are just do gooders and some of them maybe yeah. were like man i i never was able to become the uh the wilderness firefighter that I wanted to be mm-hmm. or the paramedic maybe. and So I'm going to get the state to force them to hang out with me while we search. Yeah, like this is how I can live out that unfulfilled, uh, I was about to say fantasy, but that means it unfulfilled, you know, calling. Desire. Yeah. Dream. All of them. And then there's the last group of people who are like, I want to see a dead body in the woods. <laughs> and they start joining SAR. Man, don't it, get teamed up with that guy. It doesn't always, oh, isn't that always the way though? Sure. It doesn't always work out is the thing. Sometimes search and rescue becomes search and recovery. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, most of this applies to it as well because 
search and rescue typically starts out as, or search and recovery t- starts out as search and rescue. Yeah. Right? There's always, it's kind of neat. Like, if you think about it, <clears throat> there's really no better quick sketch of humanity mm-hmm. than a group of people who've never met some the person they're looking for mm-hmm. take their time and effort and put themselves in peril to go try to find somebody who's missing and starts out on the hopes that they're still alive. Yeah, and that a lot of times what we were talking about there is like the um, someone was hiking and got lost and yeah. these people kind of regularly go out and do this. Right. Uh, but then the stuff that really gets me is like the missing child mm-hmm. where entire communities come together to form, you know, quarter-mile-long lines right. walking through a field yep. uh, or the forest together. Yeah. That's the stuff that's just like, man, I can't even take it. Yeah. You know? Way to bring it down, Chuck. Hey. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. So, uh, so okay. So, let's start at the start. So, if you if you wanted to be a uh, – I don't. I guess there's a. It's professional, right? If you're in the Coast Guard or in the military and you're trained for this, you're a professional search and rescue person, <laughs> right? Sure. It's not like you have your regular duty and then on the side you get called out for SAR stuff. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think the Coast Guard. Well, we'll have to find that out. Actually, it's a good. I don't think they're sitting around waiting on a rescue. Yeah, the thing is, though, is I saw that this, the Coast Guard rescues an average of 114 people a day. So they're always just rescuing. So I wonder if they have, like, they're just, yeah, that's what they do is some their they're search and rescue people are searching and rescuing all day, every day. I don't know. I'm stymied right out of the gate. Nice work. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> but we'll we'll start with the Coast Guard because they're actually the heart of search and rescue. They've been doing this for at least 50 years now. Yeah, I mean, there's a school in Yorktown, uh, <laughs> Virginia, called the National SAR School, and it's operated by the Air Force and the Coast Guard, and their motto is really great, always ready, comma, (laughs) that others may live. Yeah. And I believe a couple of years ago they celebrated their 50th anniversary as a school. In 2016. Yeah, because when I wrote this, I believe it was the 40th anniversary. Yeah, this this thing's so old, you were talking about a change that Noah was undertaking in 2009 in future tense. Right. <laughs> like when, when 2009 comes around, if it does. Oh, the gray beard hairs are really showing. <laughs> uh, so they have three simultaneous classes of students going on at this SAR school at all times. And their goal as a program is uh, – to save at least 93% of people and 85% of property that's at risk. Pretty good goal. Yeah. And to be ready to be there and ready, uh, I believe within two hours total response time, and to be, like, ready to go within a half hour. Right. So, like, the moment they're activated to the moment they show up on scene, two hours tops. Pretty good. Yeah, that's great. And then uh, imagine, like, rescuing 90, 95%, 90%, 93%. Let's split the difference. 93%. At first it was 95, and they're like, meh, that's shooting a little high. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But 90 is not enough. Yeah, and being, uh, you know, going through the test and the physical and mental testing for this is tough. Yeah, so uh, when I was researching this initially, I I was thinking like, oh, this is cool or whatever. But I've actually come to admire anybody who does this. (laughs) <laughs> Not just because they're out doing this, but there's a lot of things that they're doing that I can't. And now we've really entered that <laughs> that thicket, which is like um, the the rescue swimmers test. And so so the whole thing starts out with 25 pull-ups, which right there, I'm done. I'll give you three tops. Maybe 15 chin-ups. Aren't they the same thing? No. Do you put, like, the chin on the bar in a chin-up? What's the difference? Chin-ups are uh, knuckles facing you. Pull-ups are knuckles facing out. Gotcha. So chin-up, pull-up. Pull-ups are harder. Yeah, either way, maybe three. Yeah. Tops. Because chin-ups, you can, you know, kick and swing yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> right. But a pull-up, especially if you do the studly uh, arms apart pull-up, like that number. Yeah. No, mine are, like, right under my <laughs> face. Yeah. So um, you got 25 of those mm-hmm. followed by a 100-yard obstacle course. I'm assuming it's a pretty rough obstacle course. I haven't seen pictures of it. Yeah, and this is while you're carrying two 50-pound dumbbells. Again, have you ever picked up a 50-pound dumbbell? Just once. 
it's not comfortable. Never do it again. And you especially don't want to do it while you're doing an obstacle course that's the size of a football field. Right. Uh, so then you're timed while you uh, march one mile, and you think, big deal. This is after you've already done these other things, though. Right. And you're carrying a 40-pound rescue litter, which is it's called the Stokes Basket, too. It's, uh, it's that caged stretcher that you see so often on the news. And in the perfect storm. <laughs> I like that movie. It's a great movie. Yeah, I don't know about great, but... It was a good movie. It was good enough. You, you convinced me. <laughs> uh, and then it's still not over because then you get into your rescue harness, you put on your fins mm-hmm. and your snorkel, and you swim a third of a mile pulling a victim in one of these rescue litters. You swim a third of a mile to the victim and then another third of a mile pulling Towing the victim. them. And you got to do all that in 27 minutes. And I think this is after, you know, it's <laughs> not like they're like, all right, we'll go rest a few hours and then you'll do this next part. Right, right. Plus they make, you, the they make you chug a cup of pancake batter at every stop. <laughs> and so that's just the, the swimming part. Uh, there's also the inland training, which you got to learn to climb rocks. You got to yeah. learn to repel. Uh, there's a 180-pound dummy that they'll, like, tangle up in a tree 50, 60 feet in the air. So you go you gotta, get it. Yeah, you got to figure that out. Sometimes they have combo <laughs> scenarios like, this dude's in the tree, this dude's in the water. Like, go figure it out. And don't use rocks to get the one out of the tree. <laughs> no. Doesn't count. Never. So um, that's pretty – that's the Coast Guard. And I think the Air Force um, go in for that same academy. Or maybe all members of the military go to the Coast Guard one, I believe. Yes. So the, the, if you're a military search and rescue person, you train at the Coast Guard Academy for it, right? Right. If you're just a normal everyday person and you want to do it, there are SAR schools around the country, but they're all private. There's no accreditation. Right. Um, I think it's probably buyer beware in some of those cases, but I also got the impression that there's actual legitimate like SAR schools. It's not just somebody who's like, thanks for the money, chump. Buyer beware as opposed to full guaranteed or your money back. Right. <laughs> you will find your first person or all your, your tuition is, is reimbursed. Uh, and then some of these folks ride horses. Uh, it's called mounted SAR. And horses, even though it's an age-old way of uh, getting around, are really valuable um, in search and rescue for uh, quite a few reasons. Yeah. Like uh, – First of all, they're horses, so well, they can go farther than your dumb human meat body. Sure, plus they're nice to have around as well. They're nice to have around. And they can get you to places where you could kind of walk, but you probably shouldn't be walking. A horse might be a little more sure-footed or a donkey. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, I like how you said if you've been sitting in the lab analyzing stuff for the last few years, you might— benefit from riding a horse out to a search and rescue location. Yeah, I mean, that's a movie scene waiting to happen if it hasn't already. It, it is um, Wayne Knight yeah. just <laughs> griping, all mad that he's being dragged out into the woods. Right, but and then they put him on the horse. He's backwards on the horse. <laughs> Somebody stop this thing. Uh, the other thing you can do, obviously, the horse is a lot stronger than uh, a person. So if you need a rescue leader uh, towed up the side or, you know, pulled up the side of a cliff, you mm-hmm. can attach it to a horse. And then then you're going to tell them about the radio thing? I never thought of this. That's good. Go ahead. So you can station horses in position along a route when you get further and further into the woods. Mm-hmm. And if you keep a radio transmitter on each one, it acts as like a radio relay network. Yeah. Just install a Bluetooth into a horse's ear, mm-hmm. 10 horse's ears, mm-hmm. and you've got comms. Yep. Not bad. <laughs> it isn't bad at all. <laughs> I feel like we should take a break. Okay. All right, let's do that, and we'll talk about Urban SAR right after this. All right, ma'am. So we're talking about USAR or US and R. Yes. Depending on who you're talking to. This is um this is a, a whole different type of fish, yeah. kettle of fish. Um when you're talking about urban SAR, it's not woods, it's not like cliffs, it's not the ocean. It is enormous 
skyscrapers that have crumbled in on themselves, and you're sure that there are people trapped inside, and you have to figure out how to get into these this rubble and get them out without getting killed yourself. Yeah, and this is a, a division of FEMA. Um, probably should come as no surprise. And I believe in 1991 is when they set this up, uh, the National Response Plan for Disasters. And they have 25 national USAR task forces. Mm -hmm. And in the case of a flood or earthquake, what else, hurricane, plane crash, hazmat spills. Tornadoes, any natural disaster. Yeah. A terrorist attack. Sure. Um, I think they they uh, they were all called out for the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. Um, definitely 9-11. Um, Katrina, they were integral. And um, some of the bigger ones that you can list off, basically every single one of these task forces was called in to the to to assist. Yeah, and assist is the key word there because they are supporting uh, local and state emergency systems who generally take the lead in these cases. Yeah, uh, thirty-one people, I think, per team uh, for a USAR task force. Mm -hmm. And how many did they? They deployed twenty of these. Uh, on 9-11, like right out of the gate. Yeah, I think all of them except for Virginia was activated, and Virginia's was at the Pentagon instead. Oh, sure. But like the rest of them were in New York for 9-11. It was just, I was reading a, a, a firsthand account from a, a SAR team member oh, man. at 9-11, and they were just like, it was just utter chaos. Like the people who were in charge were all dead when the second tower collapsed. Yeah. Um, there was just like, he said there was just a total leadership vacuum that got filled pretty quickly, but he sure. said, I've never seen anything like this before. It was nuts. But the just the way that they had to improvise was um, pretty pretty astounding. Oh, yeah. And there's all sort of secondary dangers, you know, after a building like that collapses. Right. The Well, I mean, I guess we can talk about it a little bit, but, I mean, everything from hazardous materials leaking to, you know, electricity, downed electricity that could, you know, shock and kill you mm -hmm. to water mains bursting and, you know, filling up spaces and drowning people. Right. It's like they're every single front you can imagine they're attacking. So one of the first things they do, um, again, every every um, search and rescue situation or every disaster is actually operated initially by the local cops. Yeah. That's who runs search and rescue. And like you said, FEMA's there to assist. And usually the state agencies are there to assist, too. But um, one of the first things that happens when FEMA's um, USAR teams come on the scene is they have, like, structural engineers who are licensed professional engineers yeah. who have experience in construction or inspection or something like that who come in and say they look at this. So once this was a nice, tidy structure, mm -hmm. now it's a different kind of structure. Right. And it's not tidy at all, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of hidden dangers. But their job is to come in and assess the, the structure of the rubble and figure out how to create safe passage into this thing. And they, it's pretty amazing that they can do it at all. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the dogs, so we won't mm. get too heavy into that. But um, I believe the, the largest deployment of dogs in history was for 9-11. Yeah, I think 80 at least. Yeah, search and rescue dogs. It worked 12 hours at a time. All right, that's enough about search and rescue dogs. <laughs> and I value them. Can I say that? Sure. Okay. That's no, that's no big news. No, take it back. <laughs> so um, one of the ways you want to talk about what they do when they come into these structures and figure out what to do? Sure. I didn't know this. I guess I'd, I'd never thought about what they would do, but there there are Kevlar bags that you can put underneath up to 70-ton pieces of, like, concrete or metal or whatever mm -hmm. and inflate them, and it will actually lift them up to, like, almost two feet off of the ground. It's pretty amazing. And then once you have that, you start to shore it up. You put in steel beams and then or wood, depending on how heavy whatever your lifting is, and you actually start to create basically like an old-timey, like minor 49er mine shaft into this place. Yeah. Just shoring up and lifting and shoring up and uh, along the way to to stabilize the structure. And then once you have entry into this place, then you start sending in different kinds of um, rescuers. 
So you've got like the medics who go in. Sure. You have people who send in cameras or mm-hmm. listening devices um, to to try to find survivors. You got the people who are testing the air quality to make sure that the um, the air conditions or um, the conditions of the air aren't like deadly. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine this is all like <clears throat> you're you're on the clock too. So, like, you have to make sure it's safe to go in there mm-hmm. so you're just not killing people that are going in to rescue. Right. And But at the same time, you're trying to get people out of there. You're not just like, well, let me go investigate the scene and what's going on down there. Right. So, like, you're on a timer, but you have to make sure it's done safely, too. It's just like I can't imagine how overwhelming that must be yeah. as a rescue effort leader. Yeah, because there are people who are running this whole show. Doing there's logistics people. There are yeah. people who are overseeing everybody and making sure that this whole chaotic scene is running smoothly. Man, it, it, I can't imagine a more stressful job, especially having that clock ticking on lives, just just draining away, just hanging over your head. That's just nuts that people do this. Yeah, and you like uh, you said, you've got hazmat specialists there. You might have to suit up yourself before you go in. You might have heard on your listening device or from a camera that some people are trapped like 100 feet into a place you can't even get. So mm-hmm. you send them like uh, breathing tubes. Right. Or you might send a rescue litter down there and say, if you can get in this thing mm-hmm. and strap yourself in, we may be able to pull you out because rem- we can't get in. <clears throat> Do you Right. But at the same time, you have like uh, heavy equipment operators running like cranes and bulldozers trying to like yeah. pick off the pieces that the structural engineers have said, like, you can get rid of that one, get and they'll they'll yeah. like lift them up and move them and try to remove as much stuff as they can. But yeah, all, again, all this the clock is ticking. Do you remember the? I think it was the Bay Bridge collapse in San Francisco uh, during the World Series in I think 1989. Oh, the yeah, the earthquake. Yeah, uh-huh. it just so happened San Francisco was playing Oakland in the World Series, and yeah. that, that earthquake happened. And do you remember like the whole the top deck just fell down onto the other deck? Oh yeah, on top of people in their cars, and yeah. like some people survived. It's amazing there are people out there that, like, I would just start crying in place <laughs> and huddle in a corner. But there are people out there that can stay calm enough and are experienced enough to just be like, all right, well, this is what we do all right. starting right now. Yes. Man. Yeah. Those are the people who slap people like you and me and tell us to snap <laughs> out of it. Like, share. Share is one of those people. And maybe some of those people think, can you imagine sitting there and talking about our job? Right. <laughs> and uh, explaining what we do, how perilous that is for these two. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I got a paper cut earlier. Oh, I wasn't going to say anything about it, it but was rough. to help prove your point. <laughs> uh, we should shout out the Civil Air Patrol, though, even though I do want to do a show on that. Sure. Um, they are a nonprofit with more than, I don't know what the numbers are now, but when I wrote this, there were more than 55,000 <clears throat> civilian pilots and cadets. Mm-hmm. And they, since 1941, have supplemented our own military's aviation. Uh, it, it's pretty neat. And like Roderick was a, he was pretty young when he did this too. I guess he was a cadet. I gotcha. That'd be my guess. I'll bet he had the most polished shoes you've ever seen. <laughs> I'll have to ask him about it because I've never, I've never actually spoken with him at length about it. Yeah, I think it was a, it's civilians, right? Yeah. Okay. And it was originally supposed to be like, we're the liaison between the Air Force and, and the, the rest of civilian America. Yeah. But then they said, hey, we think there's some Nazi submarines off the coast of Maine. Can you start dropping bombs too? And they said, giddy up. Oh, I'm sure they were delighted. Yeah. They started <laughs> dropping bombs and depth charges in World War II, and things were never the same after that. Yeah. So Civil Air Patrol, your day is coming. Okay. Sorry, I just gave a little more information. Oh, that's that right. Do you want to go back and edit that out? No. All right. So we talked a little bit about some of the equipment SAR, um, USAR, I should say, carries with them. Yeah. But it's impressive. And again, if you were a mayor and your local sheriff or your local police chief or the police commissioner called you and said, "Um, we had a building collapse and we need some help, you call the governor and the governor says, "Uh, we'll see what we can do, but we think this is a federal thing. They call the president and the Mm -hmm. president says, FEMA, get in there. And FEMA comes free of charge with tractor trailers full of supplies. From what I saw, it's about one point, uh, just one task force's equipment is like a $1.4 million package of 16,400 pieces of equipment. 
everything from like medical supplies to generators to the bulldozers to yeah. everything. And they just show up and say, how can we help? You're in charge. How can we help? Yeah, and it's almost like uh, <clears throat> all the mundane things of assembling it's like assembling a film shoot or something. You're like, well, these people have to eat. Mm-hmm. They have to go to the bathroom. Right. Like all they the, need to sleep. Yeah, they need to sleep. They need to rest. Uh, so you have to set up like a little uh, a village, like in the case of a 9-11 yep. uh, or any major disaster like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty astounding. Like the one – I imagine this list grows daily uh, because the one thing you don't want to ever happen is to be on the scene of a something – of a natural disaster and be mm-hmm. like, give me the the thing. And they're like, oh, you didn't pack that right. thing. Why not? Yeah. Well, I like 16,400. <laughs> it's a nice round number. Uh, but like you said, everything from like chainsaws and jackhammers to like bolt cutters mm-hmm. and porta potties. Yep. Which we did an episode on. We did. We'll probably do one on bolt cutters one day 20 years from now. We did one on jackhammers. We did. Uh, should we talk about ASAR? ASAR? <clears throat> Yeah. Um, Aaron C. Yeah. So this is where the the in- extraordinarily trained rescue swimmers and divers come into play. Yeah, this is amazing. I think it's uh, the stat I got in here was it has a fifty percent dropout rate. Yeah, look, to go to the school. There's there's like higher, you know, like, depending on the year. No, I mean there's there's other military schools that have higher washout rates, but oh, not sure. not many. Yeah, it's mostly special forces. I think the ranger school typically has about the same washout rate as the uh, the um, rescue diver school, or yeah. rescue swimmer school. It's it's substantial. Like you, there's a really good chance you're not going to make it. Actually, a fifty percent chance you're not going to make it. <laughs> uh, the Coast Guard says that, and this is pretty interesting. Ninety five percent of all sea rescues are less than twenty miles from shore, uh-huh. and ninety percent of these are only rescue. Um, thankfully, because of all of our distress beacons. Uh, that we're armed with these days. Yeah. Like, you can usually, well, 90% of the time, you can find these people pretty quickly, at least. Yeah, and the Coast Guard, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but they updated the um, distress system that they had since the 70s, where yeah. you called in on a radio frequency and said, mayday, mayday, and tried to give your position. Mm-hmm. Maybe you had a beacon that was operating on that frequency that they could try to track. Yeah, They updated all that with something called Rescue 21, as in the 21st century. That's way more sophisticated than it was before. And so now they still monitor that channel for, for voice maydays. Mm-hmm. But if you press your beacon, it's... It, enters this vast computer and communications network that the Coast Guard maintains in at least a 20-mile area outside of all of America's shores. Yeah. And um, it's it, you're going to get their attention pretty quick. Yeah, and uh, these beacons now, they operate at 406 megahertz. And that's the, the newer standard. Oh, no, they will as of 2009. <laughs> yeah, one day. <laughs> um. Man, I was a young man when I wrote this. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Just a little pup. Just a little pup. Uh, these things are manually activated a lot of times, but they can also be automatically activated. So, like, if it hits water, like not if you spill water on it, but if it's, sub- if it's submerged in water, like the boat is sinking, right. it'll automatically activate. Or, and this is cool, it's uh, if it goes above a certain G-force. Right. And that means bad things have happened. So don't take it on a roller coaster. No. One thing I saw about that Rescue 21 is one of the updates that they made to it was it has geolocating now. So they can tell where a distress call is actually coming from. Yeah, like it's satellite <clears throat> pinpointed, right? Right. Um, but that actually does away with the prank calls of yesteryear. People would actually prank call distress calls into the Coast Guard. That's so expensive. And now they can be like, uh, we can see you're calling from Nevada. You're not out in the Pacific Ocean right now, you jerk. Wow. Isn't that terrible? Can you imagine leading the Coast Guard on a wild goose chase? What kind of jerk would you have to be? Or are you like some sort of unstable search and rescue guy who's like, let's get out there? It's like the the arsonists who uh, Mm -hmm. are also firefighters. Very interesting. I thought so, too. And then one more thing about the uh, distress beacons. There's a new—so the weather satellites that NOAA operates, mm-hmm. NASA has onboard instrumentation that they have an, a SAR office themselves. NASA does. And their whole thing is basically tracking human beings through their beacons. 
hopefully just through their beacons and not through like, I don't know, their cell phones. Mm -hmm. But now if you press your beacon, it immediately goes up and immediately gets shot out to the rest of the, um, there's actually a global search and rescue network. So wherever you are in the world, that distress signal will be spread out. Right. And then in the meantime, uh, as they're getting their resources together, they can start to try to find where you are. But they, they, you get their attention almost instantane- instantaneously now thanks to NASA. Wow. Yeah, and then eventually the beacons will, will be that instantaneous and also give out your coordinates down to something like 100, 100 meters. I thought you were going to say eventually it will predict <laughs> your disaster. No, eventually <laughs> Before it'll, it happens. it'll just shoot a tractor beam <laughs> down onto you, oh, man. pull you up to the satellite, and it'll it'll land you at Edwards Air Force Base and serve you a nice hot meal wow. and send you on your way. That'd be great. That's the future. <laughs> All right, so Combat SAR is next, and uh, I don't know. I, I, just, I don't think about this stuff a lot because I generally just think of the military is like, well, they just do everything. I thought that Gene Hackman assembled like ragtag groups of people <laughs> that go in behind enemy lines like 10 years later. I thought that's how we did it. What was that? Uh, Uncommon Valor. Oh, that's right. Maybe one of the best post-Vietnam <laughs> movies of all time. <laughs> I don't know about that. Have you seen it lately? I saw it within the last probably five years. Really? Yeah, dude, it's good. All right. That right. I'm not a gun guy, but when that guy... Um, Gives Gene Hackman the menu uh-huh. of the like yeah. heavy artillery and I guns. I remember that when I was a kid, thinking oh, that was the man. coolest thing ever. <laughs> it's still pretty cool when you see it. Today. I was like, hmm, I would take that one right. and that one. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, I think I don't know. We're not gun guys at all. Yet the notion of a gun menu just lights us up. <laughs> what is that all about? There's some part of our brain. It's just brainwashing from movies. Yeah, probably. I guess you know. Sure, that's my guess. Uh, all right, so CSAR, they're the they're basically kind of the first people to arrive behind enemy lines in, in the course of battle, uh, and the U.S. Air Force takes lead in this situation. So anytime uh, there's like a Scott O'Grady situation yeah. uh, where someone has, let's say, ejected from their jet behind enemy lines. Dude, on fire. Yeah, well, that's the worst-case scenario probably. Mm-hmm. Um, that is when CSAR really uh, earns their medal. Yeah. You know? And you, I mean, the story of Scott O'Grady kind of says it all, right? Um, earns their medal? Test their medal? It, to eventually earn a medal? Sure. Is that what I meant? Yeah. I'm mixing metaphors. I think you got it all together. Though. Yeah. So, um, with the, I think the Air Force still is tasked with combat search and rescue. Correct. But they're starting to do it jointly with the Army, I think, as well. But they have... Um, what are called expeditionary rescue squadrons. That is the name of the people that you want coming after you. An ERS? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they go in, like you said, behind enemy lines um, under a tremendous amount of danger. There's usually two helicopters. Um, one goes in and actually airlifts the person out. The other helicopter is there to, like, shoot, bad shoot guys. at people. <laughs> yeah, and be like, stay back, stay yeah. back. Um, because this is the, like, again, it's behind enemy lines. One of your pilots has been shot down. One of you guys has gotten lost or captured or something. These are the people who go in and, and get them. Yeah, they have planes too, uh, long-range search planes like the HC-130, uh, which can actually refuel these helicopters, the HH-60s, which uh, they said the, heli- the the planes are when there was, like, not much of a threat. Then I think the helicopters they use up to a medium threat. But like you said, they have, you know, ground support going on too. Yeah, and there was like a real push to update their um, their helicopter that they used to one that's specifically designed for CSAR. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the plug got pulled on it. Oh, so really? they're still, I think, working with the, is it the H, H-60s? I'll bet they call them double H-60s. <laughs> that's even longer. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is kind of the cool part for me for CSAR is – you don't really think about this, but if someone has been shot down and they do have radio comms ability and they can get in touch with you, mm-hmm. you you need to be able to authenticate this signal, whether it's a beacon or a real like human voice on the other end, because they could be compromised. They could be sitting there with a Kalashnikov to their head, yeah, and uh, being forced to like you know lure someone into a, a trap of a foreign enemy, right. So you have to be able to authenticate 
these calls, and they do that by never giving their full uh, details over the radio, like as it stands. They'll say to like add numbers or subtract mm-hmm. or multiply digits in your like call signs and your your rank and your unit numbers and stuff like that. Right, and then they verify who you are, and then once they verify who you are, they'll come get you. But there are more. Some conditions are more ideal than others. And when Scott O'Grady very famously went down um, in Bosnia during the Balkan War, yeah, uh, I think in 1995, <clears throat> they um, he they received his distress signal. Finally, I think six days on, yeah, uh, he'd been surviving by like drinking the sweat out of his own socks and eating bugs mm-hmm. and spending the whole time evading um, getting captured. Yeah, did a, a, just an amazing job of staying alive and staying uncaptured. Um, but he sent out his beacon, or they received his beacon or distress signal, mm-hmm. like a couple hours before dawn. And they're like, this guy's already been missing for six days. We yeah. found him. We can't let him just stay for another six days because the ideal conditions are after dark. Yeah. They couldn't do that. So two hours after that, um, they went in after him, like in broad daylight, I guess. And th- wasn't it Marines that actually got him out? <laughs> sure. And what was it? Wasn't it like 20 minutes or something ridiculous? Two. Oh, two minutes. Yes. From the time they arrived to the extraction. Yeah. To the time they were gone again. Gotcha. Yeah. That's I'm sure he wasn't lollygagging. I'm sure oh, he no. was like, let's go. Yeah. He's like, oh, wait, I forgot my um, basket I was making with reeds. <laughs> I got to go back and get it. Uh, pretty amazing. So I saw about his story. I looked up what happened with him. He released a book called Return with Honor. And, you know, they made that movie Behind Enemy Lines with Owen Wilson mm-hmm. and Gene, Gene Hackman again. Oh, was Gene Hackman in that? He was like the, the guy who was trying to get Owen Wilson out. I never saw that movie. He sued Fox, 20th Century Fox, and then eventually Discovery Channel. He sued over casting? He sued, um, <laughs> no, he sued for basically appropriating his life story. Uh, and the problem that he publicly said he had with it was that Owen Wilson used foul language. Yep was portrayed as a hot dog pilot and disobeyed orders, and that Scott O'Grady was none of those. Now, was he actually Scott O'Grady in the movie, or did no. they thinly disguise it? Thinly disguised, which meant they didn't need to pay him any royalties. Right, paid. and it also probably meant he lost his lawsuit, I imagine, right? I don't know. I didn't see that. I just saw like a 2001 uh, Entertainment Weekly article on it. <laughs> the definitive source. <laughs> <laughs> it's good journalism, man. All right. Well, let's take a break and we'll talk about some search techniques and other fun stuff right after this. Now, this feels like a no-brainer, but it's actually a little more interesting than you would think, establishing your search area. Yeah, so let's say— Where where do you look? Now we've moved on to somebody, say, like Lost in the Woods is a really good example of this, right? Yes. It happens a lot. Yes. And there's like—if you're a sheriff's deputy, you may or may not have any SAR training. If you're the sheriff, you may or may not have any SAR training. That's probably unlikely these days, but it's a possibility. But even if you're the only one in your department— You've got a whole department who you need to explain what to do. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you have to do is start looking for uh, answers to your questions. But you need to know what questions you have to ask first. So you're looking for any kind of evidence specifically of where the last place the person was seen was. That's the first thing you want to find. Well, yeah, last seen uh, or I think last seen can also be last uh, – well, that's not true because last known position is different. So if someone was right. last seen leaving a, a trailhead um, for their for their hike, mm-hmm. let's say they, they were last seen at noon right. starting at this trailhead. That means that another human being who's now talking to you as an eyewitness said, I saw this person. Yeah, like maybe they either saw someone on the trail or they, they checked into a ranger station mm-hmm. and got their backcountry permit or something. They're like, I'm off. So long, suckers. Right. Uh, that is different, though, than last known position. So if someone is missing, their last known, uh, last seen place may be the trailhead, but three miles in, if they find that person's baseball cap, 
then that is their all of a sudden their last known position. If you compare that to where they started, you might be able to reasonably come up with maybe they're headed in this direction and they might be somewhere in this area by now. That would be an enormous break because if you can figure out when they were last seen, like you were saying, and then when this thing was found, you know the direction and roughly the speed that they're they're going. Yeah, and this is there are a lot of assumptions involved here. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully you're you know hopefully someone wasn't like they dropped their baseball hat and then decided to go in a completely different direction. <laughs> they did. They closed their eyes and twirled <laughs> around and just headed out. Yeah. So that's the that's how that works. Um, but generally, it's it's a circle. Unless you starting from the last the place they were last laid eyes on, right? Yeah, because they could theoretically be going in any position right. in any direction, right? Right. Um, unless you come up with something called a choke point, which is kind of interesting. Uh, that is where you have either a man-made feature or some sort of geological natural feature mm-hmm. that uh, cuts off an area, like like they're not well, they definitely keep... yeah couldn't have climbed that three hundred foot cliff. Sure. So now we can go in this direction or cross that crazy river. Yeah, and. The say if it's a river, if it's a cliff, you can just position somebody at that cliff and be like, stay here in case you see them. Mm-hmm. If it's a, a river, you can say, well, they would have if they wanted to cross, they'd have to go to this bridge. So stay here on this bridge in case they come this way. That's one thing to do when you have a choke point, right? Yeah. So if you have a searcher named Cliff <laughs> right. and a searcher named River, yes, to avoid confusion, and if Jeff Bridges is searching <laughs> as well, or Bo Bridges, either one, to avoid. Uh, well. I think we know that Jeff would be doing the searching, right? I don't know. I think Bo's Bo would just be helpful. telling him how to do it. Maybe he is the bossy older brother, right? Man, those guys are the best. Like they're they're. Have you met Bo? I've never met either one of them, but uh, I've just heard interviews with both, and they're like, they're like brothers should be. Oh, you've heard interviews with them together? No, separately oh, talking they, about each other. That is so sweet. It is very sweet. They're That's like great. best buds. That's cool. And very big brother, little brother. I did they, not know that. Yeah. It's kind of neat. I wonder what the Quades are like. Oh, man. I'm curious about that because Randy is, you know. Yeah, I know. He's developed into something else. He has. So, uh, oh, oh. So if you were searching from the last. Known uh, position? No, not the last known position. Last place seen? Yes, the last place seen. Yeah. So that's where you start. Mm-hmm. If you're searching from that and you start heading out and you find that baseball cap, mm-hmm. that is a huge clue, like I said. Sure. And probably the people who found it are what are called the hasty search team. Right. Because right when you establish a uh, last place scene, you send some people out who are usually like very experienced, very well-trained SAR people. Mm-hmm. And they start scrambling out in every direction in that circle. Lightfoots. Looking for, <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. They probably climb a tree like nothing. Yeah. Um, looking, going to the places where it would be most likely that somebody like this would, would go to. Yeah, and that's uh, when they think like, you know, this person's in danger. There's a storm coming in or night is falling and it's going to get really cold. Mm-hmm. You deploy these hasty search teams. To, they're not out there combing the ground for clues. No, but I think it is a matter of course that the first thing you do is deploy the hasty team. Sure. And then you follow up with the, the deliberate people. Yeah, the, the the clue team. That's what we'll call them. All right. Uh, Colonel Mustard. They go a little slower, and they are – and I think this – I mean, well, I guess it kind of depends. It could be for someone just trapped in the woods. But definitely they use these for those community searches when, right. like, a kid is missing or something. Yeah. These are the things you see on the news when people are walking very slowly through the woods because a clue could be a, a cigarette butt on the ground, mm-hmm. you know. And you have people say – Space 20 feet apart, yeah, and each one is responsible for everything ahead of them and 10 feet to the side and 10 feet to the other side. And then that way, if everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, every square inch of this, this search area is yeah. covered eventually by this, these searchers, the second group of searchers. Yeah, they'll also use um, track traps sometime. Uh, so they'll like maybe go to a trail, uh, a place on a trail or, or any place really, and they will put, like, sand on the ground, and then they can go back and check that sand if there were footprints. Mm-hmm. They know that it wasn't, uh, wasn't their footprints, so that might have be a last known position, perhaps. So, Chuck, if you get lost yes. and they find you and they say, hey, 
come back with us. You might say, uh, no, I'll find my own way back. I'll crawl back myself even though my leg's broken. <laughs> Why would a human being do that? Well, uh, because you might get a bill at the end of the day or De- week or month. Yeah, depending on what state you get lost in. Yeah, this is a bit of a – this is a lightning rod in the outdoor community mm-hmm. because there's a lot of facets to this. Um, one facet is, hey, if you did something dumb – and you went somewhere where you weren't supposed to go, mm-hmm. and you weren't equipped to to do this or experienced enough to do this. Why should a taxpayer have to fit foot your sixty thousand dollar bill of rescue? Right, it's a legitimate point. It's a legitimate point. So they say pass laws in some states to deter people from doing something stupid. Sure. On the other hand, the um, the other side says. Search and rescue is a pure public service. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, you don't get a bill from the fire department. If you do this kind of thing, then people will think twice about calling for help if they don't have the money and they know they're going to get a $60,000 bill. Yeah. They might actually just put it off too long. And then by the time they say, okay, fine, I need some help, it's too late and they're going to die out there. Yeah. You don't want anybody thinking about money during a search and rescue operation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a weird balance you're trying to strike between encouraging people to get out and explore the wilderness, mm-hmm. but only wanting people that are to go in certain places and that have a certain experience level right. to do so. And to certainly not like like the worst case scenario like you were talking about is I'm in trouble, but I'm not going to send out my beacon. So apparently the Colorado Search and Rescue Board actually put together 15 cases this is um, according to Outside Magazine, mm-hmm. of people who actually delayed according calling to, for help. To EW. Beca- yeah, <laughs> because they um, they knew that they would be charged yeah. or there was a chance that they would be charged. Like they act- So it actually happens. It's not hypothetical. Like right. it, it happens in real life. So there are some states, like New Hampshire apparently is the, the last place you want to um, have a search undertaken for you because they actually do bill. Yeah. They've done something like $70,000 in billing for like 60 rescues since 2008. Those are pretty low-cost rescues. Yeah, it's surprising. Like this one guy in this article, is search and rescue a public service? Not exactly, is the name of the article. And there was a man named Ed Beacon who had an artificial hip, went hiking by himself on a bad weather day, Mm -hmm. tried to jump onto a ledge and dislocated that artificial hip. And uh, took it all the way to the state Supreme Court when he didn't want to pay his $9,300 bill. Yeah. And the state Supreme Court said, sorry. Yeah, because New Hampshire has, in their law, it says you can be billed if you are shown to have been negligent. And uh, the state Supreme Court agreed with the case against him that said he had a a replacement hip, Mm -hmm. uh, so a faulty hip, and he knew that there was a large possibility of bad weather. They said, stay home, old man. Basically. (laughs) What and, are you doing? Uh, yeah, but he fought it up to the Supreme Court and lost. And after that, you got yeah, you got no recourse. Yeah, and there's uh, there are quite a few states that have laws like this on the books that range from very specific to very broad. And uh, just because your state has this on the books, mm-hmm. a lot of times it's to dissuade people from being dumb. Right. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to get hit with a bill, even if they have the law on the books. It's up to them whether or not they want to pursue that. Right. Uh, and then a lot of states have programs. Um, that you can pay anywhere from three bucks to twenty five dollars to basically say if you paid this money, that means that you don't get charged for rescue. Right, it's like a, a communal pot that everybody pays into. Yeah, with the chances of them actually needing it very slim, but if right. they do need it, then they've got it. Yeah, which I think is a great idea. Not bad. I think any outdoor enthusiast that regularly does this would throw in three dollars. Sure. Or twenty five. Sure. You know. Yep. For a year. Per year. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Yeah. And the federal government apparently does mm-hmm. not, um, although that could always change. You never know. They right. Don't, but they don't get reimbursed. But they have a policy of not charging. Yeah. Um, last thing I saw, there was an app. You know, I'm crazy for apps like Gluco <laughs> for diabetes. There's also an app called Drone SAR, and it basically takes over your drone and and, and flies your drone in, um, in a search pattern for a search and rescue mission. So this is if you're a drone pilot who is lost. No. 
if you have one of those rotor, multi-rotor drones that yeah. you like to fly around and buzz your neighbor's roof with. Yeah, so you're a drone pilot. If you show up to a um, search and rescue mission, okay, gotcha. say, I got a drone, you want to use it? Uh-huh. It's got a video camera on it. They say, sure, download DroneSAR, and you it, the DroneSAR app will take over your your drone and fly it as part of this search. Gotcha. It's pretty cool. Yeah, shout out to my buddy Lowell, mm-hmm. my uh, sister-in-law's boyfriend, is a drone pilot. A couple of shout-outs for Lowell. He's a drone pilot, yeah, and a good one. Sure, because I've seen I've seen him in action, and you know it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. He doesn't. I would imagine not. He doesn't crash these things. Although it is kind of funny to see drone fails on YouTube, <laughs> right? Because um, it's always going great. Until like those, there was one I saw today where there was a, a some sort of ape or monkey preserve, and they were flying all around. It's like, man, this is gorgeous. Look at all these apes and monkeys doing their thing, and then it flies up close to one, and this monkey just fully takes a stick and goes whack. Oh yeah. And then the next thing you know, you see it falling on the ground, and then you know all these monkeys start descending upon it and like poking <laughs> it and stuff. It's awesome. It's pretty neat. So. Shout out to Lowell for that, and I meant to say uh, a few weeks ago, I finally vaped with Lowell. What? And gave it a try. I was like, you know what? He's a vapor. We got a lot of flack for dissing vapors. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, all right, let me try it. And it was one of those, you know, flavored uh, things. With With no nicotine. No, it had nicotine. Okay, at least at least you're smoking nicotine. Yeah, and it was. Uh, I will say this: it was interesting. So, are you hooked on vaping now? Or are you no, a no, vaper? no, 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 no. I'm not. I never did it again. I took a couple of puffs. It's like, well, that's interesting. It tastes. It was like banana. Okay. And I was like, I, I didn't know quite how to wrap my head around. <clears throat> still, like the pleasure of inhaling vapey banana. You're like, but the funny thing is, I can't stop thinking about it. It was weird. I was like, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, this is disgusting. Right. But I didn't want to do it again either. That's good, Charles. I think that is the lesson here. I just thought I'd give it a shot. So, Well, good for you for trying new things. Yeah. Don't ever do that again. Yeah. Lowell's leading me down a bad path. <laughs> uh, you got anything else? Nope. So we got a whole suite coming. Just Man. wait, everybody. I can't wait. Uh, and in the meantime, you can look up Chuck's awesome article, SAR, Search and Rescue, on how stuff works uh, in the search bar. Since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Golf Pro. Golf Pro. Okay. Uh, hey, guys. Like many in the golf business, my first job included time as a picker, as a teenager. And, of course, I soon became acquainted with the multiple bangs and clangs of Titleist ricocheting off every side of the cage. Remember we talked about mm-hmm. uh, taking aim? on the driving range at those Those Volkswagen Beetles. Uh, A few years later, when I was beginning my uh, career as an assistant pro, I found myself supervising these kids, one of whom relished his time on the range, and especially the chance to engage in good-natured trash talk whenever his cart came within reach. Uh, On one such occasion, after a friend and I had missed him on several point-blank attempts, he turned the cart away from us to make another pass on the far end of the range, confident that our aim would certainly not be better as he moved further away. Traveling in a direct line away from me, he had reached a distance of about 150 yards when my laser beam three iron shot took flight on a low trajectory and never left its target. It came as a surprise to him and to me when instead of the usual clang followed by laughter, we heard a dull thud and a low groan. It turned out our range picker, uh, which is the car, included a narrow gap of about two and a half inches where the back of the cage met the top of the seat and the rear of the cart. Despite my countless hours in that old machine, I never noticed, and neither had he. Thankfully, his likable demeanor had led him to be well-tipped by the membership, and the wallet in his back pocket, thick with dozens of dollar bills, took the brunt of the blow. Uh, I don't see how that would have happened, but if he was sitting on his wallet, <clears throat> how'd it hit him in the butt? Maybe it was a tiny, maybe he has a big butt, I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, <laughs> I would love this guy. So Brian says, As I have never made a hole-in-one, this still stands as my best shot I've ever oh, hit. Yeah. That's better than a hole in one. <laughs> and one might argue that uh, it's even more difficult. Yes. And that is Brian. He is a golf pro. Thanks, Brian. In Northern Cali. And he, he said to both of us, if uh, we're ever out in Carmel, okay. and we want to, A, play golf All right. with a golf pro. Yes. We could do that. Okay. Or if we want to actually drive the picker, he would let us do that. I'd just rather play golf. I want to do both. Okay, well, shoot. 
Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Thanks a lot, Brian. That was also an excellent, well-written email, if you if you ask me. It's great. Brian it's, Sleeman, he's the head pro at the Preserve Golf Club. It's basically a John Cheever short story. Agreed. Maybe Updike. I don't know. One of the two. Yeah. Uh, if you want to uh, get in touch with me and Chuck and offer us something awesome like Brian did, you can go on to our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com, find all of the links to our social meds and catch our attention that way, or you can just... Go straight to the horse's mouth and send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.